the dish that's fit to air. Cindy Adams is on 77 WABC. Good afternoon. My name is Adams, Cindy Adams, New York Post columnist and have been forever. And I'm in Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, and every Sunday I am on WABC AM on the dial on 2 o'clock to 3 o'clock. You know, our our WABC radio station is always talking about politics. They are to the right of King Lear. And I thought I was starting to think about some of the people I have interviewed over the years. They're all professionals, and they are all in, have been in the papers, and some of them are gone, but it brought up some memories. And I'm, I'm sort of feeling I want to... I want to remember some of them. Do not turn me off. I will get better. I'm going to tell you a story, and it's going to take a while. So be patient with me, because it's a great story, and it has a good ending. It deals with George Bush the Elder. His wife was Barbara Bush. Back when he was vice president, and Ronald Reagan was then president, Barbara was my friend. And Barbara invited me over to the vice president's house for lunch. It was just the two of us. Nobody was around. And I was feeling sort of nice and sprightly. And so was she. And so I asked her, I said, Barbara, your hair is lousy. Why do you go out with that lousy, crappy white hair? Why didn't you ever tint it? And she told me this long story. I'm telling you, stay with me. It's worth it at the end. And she said, there's a whole story about why I have white hair. I said, well, as long as I'm being fed lunch, go ahead. Tell me, I ain't going anywhere. So she said, back a thousand years ago, before we were anybody, when George was running for Congress in Texas, There was one day that he was due to speak at another city far from where we lived. So I was to go with him because after that there was to be an event and I was to be present. It happened he was able to go, but I was not because I had an appointment at the beauty salon. My hair in those days was brown. Of course, it was tinted. And I said, George... I can't go. I don't want to lose my appointment. So he said, okay, you'll catch up later. Fine. So I went and I had my hair done. It was just a rinse, dark brown rinse. Fade in, fade out. The hours go by. She's out of the hairdresser. She is in a small little plane. In Texas, being such a big state, they had a crappy little paper plane that was as big as my hair, my own hairpiece. And it didn't have any great facilities in it. So she was in it, and it was flying to where she was to meet George. Well, halfway through the flight, her face felt wet. So she reached for her handkerchief, and she patted her face. And the handkerchief was dark brown. The rinse was drop 
dripping on her face. How a rinse could not have been rinsed out, I don't know, but the brown rinse was dribbling on her face. So she took out her handkerchief, and she dabbed it. But as she dabbed it, more drops were coming down on her face. So she then used up the handkerchief, and she went for Kleenex, and she put Kleenex all over. The Kleenex was adhering to the wet drops and sticking on her face like measles. She realized she had to do something, understand this plane was about to land in a few minutes in another little city, and she was about to be met by VIPs in Texas, and she was panicking. So she runs into the ladies' room. There was no real ladies' room. It was a crappy little plane, propeller plane, but it was a tiny little room, and she tore out all the toilet tissue, and she grabbed it, and she brought it back to her seat and was dabbing at it. Now, the dabbing did not stop. It was now running down her face, onto her blouse, onto whatever she was wearing, and she was running out of toilet paper, and the paper was sticking to her all over like measles. So she began to panic, but there wasn't a whole hell of a lot she could do. She was on the plane. She couldn't get off the plane. She had used up all the paper, all the toilet tissue, all her handkerchief, and the, the rinse was running. So fade in, fade out. The plane lands. She does the best she can by dabbing at herself but there was nothing she could do. Paper was sticking to her with brown spots. And what happened was, when the plane landed, because they were about to celebrate the future congressman, George Bush, there was a three-piece band to meet her. And when she stepped off on the ramp, she was so nervous that she tripped and she fell into the tuba. She fell right into the big belly of the tuba with her spotted face. And that, said Barbara Bush, is the reason why I never, ever tinted my hair again. And that is why the famous Barbara Bush that we all knew had snow-white hair. That is my Barbara Bush story. Today, everybody is writing books. Everybody is writing books about themselves. Rudy Giuliani, you know, is writing a book. Melania is supposed to be writing a book. She's not telling that she is, but I know she isn't. She is. Newt Gingrich is writing a book. And I've been all of a sudden sitting here remembering old stories about so many of these VIPs that I've interviewed. I remember one day I was with Sukarno. Sukarno was then the first president of Indonesia. Indonesia was comprised of 10,000 disparate Dutch islands. It was where 
Columbus was originally looking, searching for, because it was the Spice Islands. And that's what he was on his way toward when he somehow got loused up and ended up in downtown Staten Island or somewhere in the Bowery. Anyway, Indonesia was then 10,000 disparate islands, each with its own language. Sukarno came in and he made it all one country. And I was asked to do his book. Why I was asked to do his book, I was doing his autobiography, as told to me. I was not competent. I was not able. I was not in the pantheon where you are doing VIP books like that. But it was because he had met me earlier at an event. And at this event, he was wearing his usual uniform. Sukarno wore a uniform, as do many of these generals who become presidents and want to look important. So I had met him. I was nothing. I was just doing a reporter job for a small syndicate. And he wore his uniform and he wore a cap, a black cap, which was called Biche, P-I-T-J-I. So I asked him, I said, Mr. President, why are you wearing the uniform? And he gave me what was obviously a rehearsed old-time speech. He said, because I am the leader of millions, a hundred million Indonesians, and they need a symbol of authority to look up to. And I looked at him, and I said, and where I got the nerve to say it is because I was nobody from New York City and felt okay. And I said to him, I don't think that's why you wear that uniform. I think you wear it because you damn well look handsome in it. And he looked at this young reporter, me, and he started to laugh. And the two of us broke into hysterical laughing. And we never got over it. And after that, he put his arm around me at that time. And he gave me a hug. And he said, you know, you're right. But please, don't tell anybody about it. And so, time passed. I went back to the United States of America because I met him in Indonesia. At that time, I didn't even know where Indonesia was. I thought, I don't know, you get to Greece, you make a left. Somewhere out there is Indonesia. So I wasn't prepared, but I was there for a whole lot of different reasons, which maybe I'll tell you on another broadcast. But there I was, and that's what I did. And so a year later, he went to the then American ambassador, Howard, Howard, I forgot his last name. I'll think of it in a minute. He was the American ambassador. And he said, remember that lady that I met who made me laugh? And Howard said, yes, I do. And he said, I want that lady to come back and do my autobiography. So the ambassador said, sir, whatever you wish, we will get accomplished. But she is a very young little reporter. I'm not certain that she is able to do an autobiography of a president of a large nation. And he said, 
all the other people, the reporters who come, smoke cigars or they have ashes down the front and they are sloppy and dirty looking and they are not fun. She looked wonderful and she had a great sense of humor and she made me laugh and she is the one I want to do my life story. And so I ended up doing the life story, the autobiography as told to me, of President Sukarno of Indonesia. I am at this moment the godmother of his couple of his children and his grandchildren still. The grandchild of Sukarno, and I am the godmother, will be entering Chicago University. But one day, as we're talking about my doing some famous people like Barbara Bush, one day I was living with Sukarno. I was living there for years and years and years. And one day I was invited to go up country to his weekend place. He was inviting me for dinner. I was there for years, years. I used to get out to go to Hong Kong for a good glass of water because there was no decent water in Indonesia. Indonesia was nothing at the time, but it had this great guy, Sukarno, who spoke English, and people would come up to him on their stomachs. Women would. They would crawl up on their stomachs and bow when they received enough time to get to his shoes and bow. And I would come in and kiss him on the cheek. And he loved it. And he laughed. And we did his autobiography. So this one weekend, he invites me up to his country place. It was an hour and a half away from Jakarta. And I come up. I'm all dressed. I've got earrings. I've got bracelets. I've got spangles. I'm I'm set. The road was pitch black all the way. And when you reached the gate of the palace, there were barricades and there were men with guns, rifles, and everything was black. And they wouldn't let my car through. And I said, well, why won't you let my car through? I'm Cindy Adams, like they cared. And they said, well, I don't know who you are, but you can't go. It's, it's the, the palace is dark. I said, the palace cannot be dark. I have been invited for dinner. So this took a half hour. Finally, the driver got out. I got out. My guard got out. And they called the palace. And the palace answered. And Sukarno said, let her up. She is okay. She is a friend. And when the car was allowed up, out came President Sukarno of Indonesia, who at that time only had 105 million people, today many more. And he said, I'm so happy to see you, Cindy, but what are you doing here? I said, what do you mean, what am I doing here? I was invited for dinner. He said, no, that's tomorrow night. So, so Sukarno of Indonesia, in a darkened palace, turned all the lights on, woke up his chef, made dinner, and I sat there for hours having dinner with the president of, Suk of Indonesia, Sukarno. I don't think I should tell you any more stories. I mean, I've done enough. This is like 15 minutes I've been telling you stories. If you're nice to me, 
in the following weeks, I'm going to tell you some more stories because I have lived with a lot of them. I have lived with Ronald Reagan. I have lived with the Shah. I can tell you about the Duchess of Windsor. Okay, I just tell you one more story. And then we have to go into a, a interview with the people who are Amanda Green and Adam Green. They are the children who are doing a big party at the Carlisle with Comden and Green. Comden and Green are gone, but they are the ones who wrote some of the biggest Broadway history shows of our lifetime. Anyway, one story about the Duchess of Windsor. I'm interviewing her. They were at the palace. She was speaking about her husband only as His Royal Highness. If I said, how's your husband? She said, His Royal Highness is well, thank you. Well, okay, fine. I said, well, where is he? She said, His Royal Highness is in another room. Oh, okay. Well, how how is life these days? She says, life with His Royal Highness. Everything was His damn Royal Highness. I got the point. But what she said was, because I'm thinking about Meghan Markle and her idiot husband, that's not going to last, according to people in England. And I now know the reason why, because the Duchess said to me, when we left England, we were treated royally. Royal coaches, people bowing, equerries, parties. And now, she says, people have forgotten us. We are known because we are the Duke and Duchess of Windsor. But we are now poor. We are now broke. We now have to sell things. But behind, on the back of the couch on which we were sitting, was a huge leopard skin, real leopard fur skin. I said, what is that? She said, His Royal Highness shot it, and we take it with us wherever we go. If we go on an aeroplane, we pack it. If we take it on a ship, we take it with us. I said, well, okay, if that's what you do, that's that's what you do. And I said, what do you do if you say actually that you're you're poor? What do you mean you're poor? So she says, his royal highness is inside now talking about our future and our money and speaking to our stockbroker. We are not in rich situations any longer. Okay, I am just mentioning that because all of that is going to be happening at some point to Harry and Megan Sparkle. And here's the one thing before I stop talking and we go into a station break. She went down to Florida and she appeared at VIP parties in return for which they would give her a diamond bracelet or some other piece of jewelry. What she did with it, I don't know. Whether she sold it or not, I don't know. But I do know for a fact that she was paid for every appearance. That is what happens to celebrities when you leave your position. And now I am going back 
to tell you I have to be a station break. I am up to my ears with VIPs, and I am now going to do a station break, and then I'm going to come back. Be patient. Be with me. I'll be back. This is the Cindy Adams Show, 77 WABC. So there are people here who are young and maybe don't know all of these names. When were the years that we were interested in Comden and Green, when they were tearing well, up I mean, Broadway? Well, they, I mean, they began their careers together in 1939, uh, performing with a, a group that included Judy Holiday at the uh, Village Vanguard, part of a group called The Reviewers. And uh, one of the people who used to come and see them all the time and also played piano for them occasionally was Leonard Bernstein, who my father had met at summer camp. And uh, that's when they started working together. And then they had their first show in 1944, which was on the town. And when they, when they and uh, Bernstein and, uh, and Jerome Robbins, who did the choreography, were all in their 20s. And, uh, and then that continued. And they, they continued to work together pretty much every day, other than vacations and what have you, until my father died in uh, 2002. They were terrific. They were the most fabulous names on Broadway. I didn't know actually how they started. I know they worked downtown. And then how did they find a way to work together? I think that they were, you know, I think they began by just wanting to, uh, they really wanted to be actors. Uh, and I think my father was ill-suited to be an actor. He wasn't the, uh, <laughs> okay. a, he wasn't the leading man type. Uh, he wasn't, he wasn't easily classifiable and, and Betty wanted to be an actor as well. And, uh, but they, my father met Judy Holiday one summer and they became friends and she pulled them into doing an act at the village Vanguard, which is still there, but, uh, and yep they realized they couldn't perform other people's material because they needed to pay royalties. And, and their big joke is, you know, we uh, couldn't afford the royalties. So we chipped in and bought a pencil. And uh, <laughs> That's great. No, I understand that. I understand that. Okay. So now on Monday, you're doing some sort of a midget event about it. And tell me, tell me about what you're doing at the Carlisle on Monday. Uh, I'm, I'm not doing anything. It's, it's, it's Nick Blameyer and Mallory Portnoy who were in, who played my yes, father and Betty yes, in, yes, in Maestro. Yes. yes. Uh, are doing, they are, they are recreating, uh, a, an evening that my, my father and Betty, uh, did first in 1958, then again in 1977, where called a party with Comden and Green, where they performed, their own songs because throughout their lives, lives they wanted to be, they, they, you know, they would get up and perform at the drop of a hat. Um, you, you did not have to ask twice. And um, so. Okay. Uh, now, now fact, Monday. They wrote, they wrote parts for themselves in On the Town. They were in their first musical. Uh, a public relations man whom I know well, Rick Miramontes, he said. Yeah. He's, he's producing this so how did all of this come about? It's a wonderful idea, a wonderful thing for New York. Tell us how it started, the idea to do it a bit in, in the Carlisle. I, I mean, it was extreme. It was, it's a pretty, it's a short story. I mean, Nick, who has been a friend of Amanda's for a long time and who I've gotten to know, uh, 
just got in touch with the two of us and said, how would you feel about Mallory and uh, me doing this evening? And we said, go ahead. Yes. Fantastic. We'd love to see you. Because uh, I think they had, their parts had originally been larger in the movie. Uh, you know, in you know, in the movie, you see them performing a snippet of a song from On the yes. Town called yes. Carried Away. Yes. And uh, I think they wanted to continue to inhabit these characters that they'd uh, that they'd worked on for such a long time. Are you in show business yourself? What do you do? Uh, I am a, I, I've been writing about uh, theater for Vogue magazine for a long time. And um, I, and then about other things for the New Yorker. And uh, I had a brief, I, I, my, your, 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 Former post colleague Maura Moynihan and I used to have a <laughs> used to perform together as sort of a comedy act, kind of a, a, a poor man's Nichols and May, I guess is how you might put it. And um, uh, but that was, you know, I didn't I didn't really want to uh, to be a performer. I think I probably came from the only family uh, where my, my my father was, you know, in the way a father might sit his son down and say, now, son, you can't go into show business. You've got to be a banker. My I understand. Father was I understand. Upset I, that I didn't want to be a performer. So did you meet celebrities in your home growing up? Well, yes. I mean, I didn't think of it that way at the time, but certainly, I mean, uh, I mean, First, I mean, certainly Leonard Bernstein was around all of the time, and he—I mean, he was—and he was my godfather. And uh, I mean, and Julie Stein was my sister's godfather. And uh, there were, yeah, it was a, it was a, yeah, it was a, it, it was an extremely interesting mix. I mean, I remember one of the, even as a kid, I knew this was strange. At a, one of my parents' parties, seeing. Um, seeing Arthur Schlesinger Jr., you know, the historian and former Kennedy speechwriter talking with Milton Berle. I thought, <laughs> wow, that's an odd combination. But it was, uh, I think there was a time, uh, you know, they, that, there, there was there was a time when sort of people who were famous knew each other, despite uh, uh, the fact they came from different fields. I think that um, S.J. Perlman, I, yeah, S.J. Perlman described it as the aristocracy of success. Actually, and, uh, I grew up with things like that, so I understand. My husband was in show business, so I do understand I what you're saying. Um, Amanda is in charge of the estate. I I don't know what that actually implies. What what does that mean? Uh, I think it, it it just me it means sort of handling you know contracts, and I mean we both talk about the decisions of you know, what productions will be done and, um, you know, the, the, the details of, you know, what what can be controlled. So is, is there a lot of action to have more stuff about Comden and Green coming out? Is that it? Well, there is a there's a new production of uh, their version of uh, Peter Pan is coming to New York. I forget the exact dates of it, um, but um that and that's that's in some ways has been one of their most successful musicals. It was a I, that was a musical that uh, I think Jerome Robbins was directing, and it was not doing well out of town. And he asked them to come in and write some new songs, and there were already some wonderful songs in it. But uh, they came in and wrote some new songs, like 
that ended up becoming sort of standards like Never Never Land and Captain Hook's Waltz, and and the show became a success. And uh, it really gets done all the time. And there's a there's a new version of it coming. What what uh, was it? York. What was it like growing up in in a household with such a fam- famous parent? What was it like? Were they just like a regular mother and father, or you had all these celebrities coming through? Well, I mean, you know, they. I mean, that's not as if I, you know, woke up to go to, you know, to go to school and there was Paul Newman sitting on the foot of my bed. I mean, it was, you know, it was most days was, uh, you know, life, uh, getting up and going to school. I, I mean, I think they were, in many ways, like most parents. In other ways, <laughs> maybe a little unrealistic about some of the jobs of parenting. I don't think that they weren't. Neither of them were early risers, so uh, they generally, by the time. They got up. My sister and I were had been in school for a number of hours by that point. <laughs> okay, can you tell me a story or two, a household story about your family? I mean, they, to us, they're so famous. It's so extraordinarily famous. I figured there must be some some little historic story you you might want to share. Well, I mean, one of the things that I think about. I mean, when I when I think about what were the, you know, incredible, you know, privileges of growing up in the world that my parents were a part of. Uh, I, I mean, I think of one New Year's Eve. I mean, I was already at this point, I was in college. So, it was, I mean, but uh, my parents were having people over for New Year's and among them was Leonard Bernstein. And our our next door neighbor is you know, right across the hall uh, from my parents' apartment was Isaac Stern. And uh, he came, he, he wasn't, he had been at another party, but my father heard their door open and because he was completely not bashful, uh, ran out and said, would you get your fiddle? And um, brought him in and he and Lenny sat down and played, uh, played through all of Mozart's piano and violin sonatas until about four in the morning. And I, I was well aware at the time that that was extraordinary, <laughs> that I was well, getting to hear these two musicians, incredible musicians, uh, just off the cuff play Mozart. Uh, not any of us have had something like that happen. What about the Leonard Burns, the movie? Um, how much of Leonard Bernstein did you yourself experience? I mean, I I knew him well. He was my godfather. Was he important um, then? Was he famous then? Oh, he was quite famous. Well, well, long before I was born, he was famous, and uh, so you know, I was I, I was well aware that he was you know he you know he was a you know a magnitude of fame that was you know not like my father's. I was aware I was aware that he was a world famous figure and. Um, you know, from when I was a young age, my father would take me or my sister and me to the, you know, to Lincoln Center to watch him conduct and uh, and then get to go backstage afterwards. And it was both, you know, that was just part of the fabric of life. But it was also I was aware that it was pretty, you know, it was extraordinary. Oh, of course it was. Did, did you the, the two people who play you and uh, play your family? Did you did you have to show them certain trends or? No, they just they 
I mean, I had a I had a conversation uh, as did my sister with Nick, who played who played my father, and he just asked us, you know, questions and was I think trying to get really get you know get a sense of who my father was as a man, and um, uh, I think a lot of that didn't end up in the movie as it often happens because. What did you tell him? What did you suggest? Um, I mean, that, that my father was very eccentric and very loving. And um, I mean, he, he was both he could be both a very, you know, a sardonic and very uh, gimlet eyed observer of of people and of social mores. But it, but he also had a, a real innocence. Uh, there was something very, you know, innocent and almost and and boyish about him, and uh, he never lost that, even even you know, up, so, uh, really up until the day he died. Adam, tell me now, what are you going? What is going to happen Monday night at the Carlisle? What is being shown? How how does it work? Uh, I think there. I think uh, Nick and Mallory are going to be playing my father and Betty, and they are doing. This, you know, this they're they're just doing this show that my father and Betty did. That was a party with Comden Green, where they perform songs, you know, throughout their career and talk about their career. And I think they're doing it not as two people presenting a show about them, but doing it as them. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. We hear it's a wonderful idea happening Monday, and everybody wants to go see it. And I hope to meet you while we're there. Thank you so much for coming Oh uh, Well, th- thank you. Love you. Thank you very uh, much. Thanks. Okay. Thanks. Okay. Bye. It's the Cindy Adams Show, 77 WABC. I am back. A little poem. Roses are red. Violets are blue. Stick migrants in Delaware to pee and poo. I just thought that was a nice little thing. Soon they may even refuse to sponge on this historically, culturally, financially, theatrically greatest city on the planet, New York City. Maybe they'll move to to other places where everyone wants to come is New York, or they wanted to come. Who knows if they still want to come? This was before its officials effed it up, and it has now lost its way. Now, let me tell you, this state... Our Democratic ex-cab driver judge who sat in on Donald's money, he is a confirmed progressive who is into pop culture and ruled against Donald for three years. His background, you ready? It's playing in a rock band. It was protesting the Vietnam War. He is now hustling a screenplay he wrote, and in the twilight of his career, he is posing for photos in his chambers, who, screw the law books, also states he sticks his emotions into his decisions. And he was quoted as saying, I am going to protect my staff. Anybody can run for president. Not everybody can protect my staff. Yeah, anybody can run for president. So how about Mike Pence, Ron DeSantis, 
Robert Kennedy Jr., Vivek Ramaswamy. How about Hillary having run for president? Also in 1860, Stephen Douglas, John Breckinridge, and John Bell, all of whom ran against Abraham Lincoln. Also maybe Icky Nicky, who's still running or walking. What the hell has happened to what was this number one best terrific city in the universe, my city? People in poverty with the highest tax state in the country. We got prosecutors who are ignoring crime. We got someone shot in the subway. Yeah, so it's okay. You can't stop crime because the police are too busy learning penmanship. Our city has suddenly developed new rules. Spitting is illegal, but pot, guns, killing, stabbing, soon maybe gambling, plus robbing, stealing, raping, and assaulting, that's fine. Just don't bother the DA, who's busy trimming his nose and chin hair, and sentences nobody. And this screw you comes straight from our elected officials to businessmen like Donald. This judge and all the others, so better don't open anything in New York City. Just sing over hill, over dale, we will hit the crappy trail as those migrants keep rolling along. Listen, you wait another ten days until New York City, thanks to migrants, turns into Forest City, Arkansas. I want to talk about Rudy Giuliani. He's been my friend forever. He's on our station. Now, like crabgrass, he is everywhere. He's in TV, newspapers, lectures, courtrooms, radio. Come April 16, it'll be print. It's War Room Books. It's a derivative of Skyhorse Publishing. The editor is former Times Magazine reporter Elaine Lafferty. The foreword is by Stephen Bannon. The title, as per Amazon, is, quote, The Biden Crime Family, the blueprint for their prosecution. It includes the laptop guy who has not been sued. It includes Rudy's friend, Dr. Maria, who was on the air with him on WABC. It will lay out Operation Biden. It includes everyone but Joe's chiropodist. Not nervous about unleashing all this? No. You hear Rudy is relaxed, not scared, cool as a brain surgeon. He's opened wide an old man's senility, his son's degeneracy, and Joe's brother James as the brains behind their gains. The sessions were endless on Zoom when it came to writing this book. There were in-person meetings with editors and writers. At apartments over six months, this went on. He appeared in each case detailed, encyclopedic. We're not saying nervous, 
No. He kept charts, copious notes, files. America's electorate is his jury. It's his 600-page outline of a legal case, the understanding being it was him, Rudy Giuliani, who took down crime families, took out Gotti, took away the filth then in our city, since he obviously knows how to take apart a crime case, he has taken apart this one. I hope he has energy enough to take apart what's going on in our city now. You will be able to order this book on Amazon when it comes out in April. Send me a copy. We go on. Everybody's writing a book. There are whispers that Melanias has already reached out to publishers, shopping a book. So far, discussing the subject or asking her personally about it gets only silence. Savvy as she is chic, she is now deciding how much of a role she'll play in 2024, and with whom, and doing what, and why, and what will she face on the campaign trail. Public appearances, speeches, interviews, TV, hostility. Who can she trust? Nobody makes Melania do what she won't do. I know her. I've been with her. I've been with her and him. I knew her when he first met her. She's smart. Those who know also know that right now they know it's better not to know anything. I got another book I want to talk about. There is a famous British author by the name of Lady Colin Campbell, who is also my friend, and who just quoted me. I am told I didn't hear it, but she just quoted me on YouTube, who knows the royals better than I know my dentist. She has said, and this is a direct quote, the Harry Megan thing will backfire. Trust me what I know. It's push and pull. They together are failures. Also, it's end of the line for Harry as he faces a test to keep the conditions of the king quiet. Also, Harry has no chance of taking on royal duties. Okay, I now have one minute left to talk to you. I want to thank you all for listening to WABC. I love everybody who's on this station. I love John Katsimatidis and his wife, Margot. They are the goodest people I've ever known. They help everybody when you ask them. Whoever's in trouble, they're there to help. I love Chad Lopez. He's the president. Everybody listening to this station know you are listening to good people. That, of course, excludes me. I would now like to say thank you for having listened to me and for listening to me forever. You've been with me, and I thank you. I love you all. Please. Send me more letters, but don't insult me anymore. This is Cindy Adams saying thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. 
I'm signing off. I'll talk to you next Sunday. Bye.